Welcome to the McDonald Laurier Institute podcast, Pod Bless Canada, the nation's premier public policy podcast. My name is Shuvale Majumdar, Monk Senior Fellow for Foreign Policy. And let me tell you, I'm especially excited today to welcome a great friend of the Institute, Ambassador Nimrod Barkan from the Israeli Embassy here in Ottawa. He has a very long and storied past, but perhaps one of the more interesting tidbits about his background is that he used to be the director for the Center of Policy Research in the Israeli Foreign Ministry. Ambassador, welcome. We're so happy to have you here today. Shalom. Thank you very much. Shalom to you too. We have lots to talk about. It's a dynamic world. So shoot, as we say. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. <laughs> I, I think I love where this conversation is about to go. <laughs> We're talking about a democratic country in the heart of a very dangerous neighborhood, characterized by asymmetric warfare, terrorism, state sponsors of terror, and an interesting advent over the last years shifting regional alliances. Over the last months, we've seen a tremendous shift in how the Gulf countries and Israel have been able to have bilateral exchanges. Can you give us a picture as to what has been happening? And is this a big shift from a decade ago, or has something new been gestating in the last couple of years? The sins of Middle East alliances have shifted many times. Yes. Uh, from the Arab Cold War, the book by Malcolm Kerr, the father of Stephen Kerr, the coach of uh, the Golden State Warriors, yes. to uh, the current reality in which uh, we have an alliance of uh, the Shiite Muslim Brotherhood countries like uh, Turkey, uh, Hamas, uh, Qatar, all cooperating against the uh, very unusual Sunni Jewish alliance which includes Saudi Arabia, Egypt, that has outed its alliance with Israel in 60 minutes, two weeks ago. Yes, yes. Uh, Jordan, uh, the Gulf countries that you mentioned. So this is no longer Shiite uh, Sunni, no longer moderate radicals. It's a competition for hegemony in the Middle East, where the uh, Iranians, Shiites, and the Turks yes. are uh, together trying to unseat uh, Saudi Arabia and Egypt, and they're aligning themselves with Israel in order to prevent that because of the nature of the attitude of uh, Iran and Turkey towards and Hamas, of course, and Hezbollah towards Israel. How is it possible that the government of Erdogan in Turkey and the Ayatollah in Tehran could have common interests? Where could that even be born? Well, politics makes for strange bedfellows. I did not invent uh, this uh, particular uh, idiom. Uh, Erdogan is trying to achieve dominance in the Muslim world, and he's doing it through the bashing of Israel. Mm -hmm. His biggest nemesis is Egypt, the country that used to be the leading uh, Sunni country, mm -hmm. and the one that had Muslim Brotherhood leadership and threw away yes. because of the failure uh, it brought upon them. Yes. And so he is uh, aligning himself with whoever can help him obtain his goals. Now, this Turkish uh, Shiite alliance uh, existed for a long time. Uh, anybody who will look in Wikipedia will see that I'm, I was blamed for uh, claiming that Turkey violated sanctions against Iran during the Security Council Correct. Uh, sanctions. And it's true, I did. And we knew that that was the case. Yes. Uh, so today this continues, uh, and Erdogan is uh, bashing Israel domestically in order to drum up uh, support for himself, particularly now 
uh, as they head uh, to municipal elections that have significant political uh, ramifications in Turkey. Right. And Iran is their ally, and uh, Hamas is their allies, and they benefit one from the other. And, right. and the, it, it is, the reason they cooperate is that they, they each benefit in the different sphere where they want to operate. Correct. So it's interesting because in the last little while, we've seen the Israeli Minister of Sport appear in Abu Dhabi. We've heard the Israeli National Anthem at a sporting event in the United Arab Emirates. Your prime minister has made a historic visit to Oman. There are reports about a delegation arriving from the UAE to Israel flying over Saudi airspace. It's a really fascinating change of how these relationships are being publicly disclosed. Where does all this lead? Well, I apologize for saying that uh, this uh, closer relations between Israel and the Gulf Emirates uh, mm-hmm. are not new. Right. Uh, we even had the diplomatic representation in Qatar that Correct. was uh, closed uh, several years ago. And visits by Israeli Prime Minister to Oman uh, happened before. It's not the first time. Uh, the uh, Emirates, uh, the Gulf countries, see Israel as their deterrence against Iran. Uh, they say, I'm not saying it, they say that Iran will build a nuclear bomb and Israel will have the nuclear bomb to deter the Iranians and this is what will defend them and, so, and the same uh, is with Saudi Arabia. So uh, it's a, a marriage of convenience. Exactly. There is no affection. This is a state affairs and uh, they cooperate with whatever can provide them uh, defense and the uh, alliance against their main enemies. And uh, Israel also cooperates with them, also for the need of recognition, which is obvious, but right. also as a bulk against the Iranian ambition in the region. This is important, this animating principle of the Iranian threat across yes. the region, yes. uh, which shows how, how seriously the region's actors take the Iranian threat to be able to bridge historic divides in common cause, in common security and stability as a focus for for their alliances. I'm curious, just outside of Israel's border in Syria, you've seen this unholy partnership between the Russians and the Iranians inside Syria. What would you characterize that relationship as? Would that be an alliance where militaries are deeply cooperating tactically and logistically? Or is it just a convergence of you know some shallow interests? It's never shallow. Uh, one's interests are always very deep in one's view. Yes. But the Deputy Foreign Minister of Russia spoke about this very specific uh, issue three days ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she said very clearly, we don't have an alliance with Iran. We are not allies of Iran. And we are responsible. We have a responsibility towards the security of Israel just as well. Mm-hmm. Namely, the Russians who helped uh, Bashar al-Assad retain his uh, power did that because of their view of their interests. Mm-hmm. And their uh, useful tools at the time were Iran and Hezbollah. One without the other would not have been able to save Bashar against the uh, revolt against it. They needed each other. They needed each other. Now, uh, as the uh, civil war in Syria is dwindling down, yes. dwindling down, but there are still a lot of problems remaining in the north between Turkey and the Kurds, and what will the United States do, and so on. Our allies, the Kurds. Yes, well, they're certainly our allies, and they, they are now faced with the need for a divorce. Russians don't need, Russia does not need Iran in Syria anymore, and they want to keep them far away as possible so that they can reap uh, the most benefit from the reconstruction of Syria, from the political alliance of uh, Bashar. And I think uh, Bashar himself 
wants to keep the Iranians at arm's length in, the, in order to work with the Russians. So he plays between the, the two sides. And for all of them, there is only one military force that can weaken the Iranians, and that's Israel. Right. So we are the useful tool, like Iran was the useful tool for the Russians yes. and Hezbollah was yes. in the internal civil war. So now we are the useful tool uh, to keep these two countries away. And there are other reasons why Russia <coughs> wants close relations with Israel. I just mentioned to the global affairs that there are 400,000 Russian tourists every year in Israel. 400,000. 400,000. And the largest number of flights of Aeroflot from Moscow is to Tel Aviv. Wonderful. And they, I was just in Israel in Novigod, which mm -hmm. is the Russian New Year. It was crammed at Russians all right. over. Right. And there are a million Russians living in Israel. Right. So there, there is more to it than just utilitarian view. But clearly, uh, Israel serves uh, the Russian interests, and so we rely on coordinating with them in order to push the Iranians away, because we can't do it on our own. This is a fascinating proposition, because these alliances and partnerships are all a convergence of various interests. Of course. And, you know, I kind of loathe the idea that Israel is being used as an ally or partner of convenience. We use them too. It's a, it's a mutual, <laughs> it's benefit. It's mutual benefit. Yes. Uh, and in international affairs, you make alliances uh, with whom you need at any given moment. Otherwise, you get bludgeoned and you can't afford it. So you need to uh, make friends uh, not only with angels, but also with the, the sub-angels that are around. Uh, yeah, no, there's, not, there's no pure actors sometimes to work with, especially in that region. Well, our region, I, I, the truth is, I don't think that we are unique in the fact that there are alliances made and strange bedfellows uh, because of that. But uh, we certainly, as you said before, we live in a very dangerous area mm -hmm. where people are looking to slaughter one the other side. So we can't afford not to make alliances. Well, Ambassador, let's talk about, you know, some of these exigent security threats that Israel is facing today. Hezbollah and Hamas seem to be deploying tunnel technology to try and go under the borders of Israel to wreak havoc in Israeli society and murder and murder Israelis and Jews. Can you give our listeners a sense as to exactly what the scale of this tunnel threat poses? Like, how vast are these tunnels, the network of them that Israel's been able to discover? Well, let's uh, separate the uh, tunnels uh, between Gaza and Israel and the tunnels between uh, the north, uh, Lebanon and Israel. Sure. The terrain is completely different. The uh, tunnels uh, in Gaza are easy to dig. It's a sandy soil, mm -hmm. so it's a much faster process. So let me concentrate on the tunnels in the north. First of all, the tunnels in the north are 50% of, of a comprehensive attack plan that uh, Hezbollah has devised against Israel. The other 50% was, the idea was an attack storming an Israeli town or uh, uh, kibbutz along the border, conquering it, keep killing the civilians, raising Hezbollah's flag and claiming uh, a victory. How many people would be part of that on-ground attack? Would it be 500, several, several hundred, uh, up to eventually several thousand. And they assume that they will lose. And those who will attack will eventually be defeated, but they will get the benefit of modern media coverage that will right. uh, present them as victors. Would, this, would these people be soldiers who have been hardened through the battles of Syria? The Hezbollah has grown uh, in, during the Lebanese civil war. After right. Hezbollah saved Bashar, 
from being toppled, which looked imminent, uh, and then they intervened. Hezbollah has grown. I think they have about 15,000 terrorists fighting for them today. So a few hundred uh, can make a huge difference if you use television right. correctly. Uh, as we are in a podcast, we should know that modern technology and modern media can change reality by uh, yes. promoting one thing or another. Yes. So we decided to stop prevent this uh, attack, land attack, by building a wall along the Israeli-Lebanese border on our side that will prevent storming of Israeli uh, towns and uh, villages. And, villages. Uh, and uh, concurrently, Hezbollah was also digging the tunnels so that beyond the storming of a town or village, they will also penetrate large number of Hezbollah terrorists into the northern Galilee of Israel, right. and they create a bigger problem for Israel, and it looked like a massive attack to conquer the Galilee, which was their vision. So now that has been thwarted, and it wasn't easy to dig the tunnels because of the rocky terrain. <clears throat> this is not sand, no. like in Gaza. It no. takes. It, would you say it takes bulldozers? Like, what kind of effort does it take to plow through rock well, to get under the Israel? If I knew how to dig tunnels, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> uh, I would be selling my merchandise uh, elsewhere. Noted. <laughs> uh, but uh, evidently, needed uh, serious uh, equipment, yes. which they had, and they needed to be quiet, relatively speaking, so that they will not be detected very early on. The problem is also that the edifice that was created after 2006 to preserve the peace in South Lebanon is ineffective, and that's Unifil. They didn't find out about it. They didn't know about it. They were not allowed uh, access to places where the tunnels started. Even after the tunnels were discovered, they're not allowed access. So Weak, the, weak, the, very weak. Very, very weak, and I think that it's because they're more interested in forest preservation than in doing their duties. Hmm. And we have been complaining about this to the Security Council. Describe that forest preservation interest a little bit more. Well, the Unifil assumes that if they will challenge Hezbollah, Hezbollah will kill them. Now, they are not making it up because it already happened once. Mm -hmm. When the Spanish battalion about 10 years ago found out about Hezbollah violations, they killed six Spanish soldiers. And that's when serious attempts by Unifil to detect Hezbollah violations of Resolution 1701 stopped. Mm -hmm. uh, and they became essentially uh, sideline sitters. Uh, who don't want to anger anyone uh, in South Lebanon, and became ineffective. They're a large body. They're about 12,000 soldiers. 12,000 soldiers. 12,000 soldiers. Incapable of being, doing unwilling. the basic task. Unwilling. Not even incapable, unwilling, unwilling to do the basic task. Because of forest preservation. And they, you know, when you close the door, they tell you the truth. Well, we'll risk right. soldiers from the countries that gave us soldiers. They'll run away. What's the point of them, then? Ah, well, the idea in the past was to create several layers of deterrence for a breakout of another 2006 war. Right. First deterrence is the Israeli threat to Hezbollah. Right. Second level of deterrence is Hezbollah's Lebanese identity that will prevent them from risking a war uh, without legitimacy uh, that will destroy the Shiites and the Sunnis in Lebanon. So they will be under the internal pressure of Lebanon. Right. That layer still exists. Right. The Sunni population in Lebanon is certainly not interested in another war with Israel. Right. And the Shia population, if you visit there and you see all the big villages that they've succeeded in building mm -hmm. in the time that passed since, you will see they have a lot to lose. So they don't, they're not particularly keen on war breaking out. And the other layer was in the envelope that we wanted to build around this interest, which will be made up of the Lebanese army, 
and Unifil. So the Lebanese army has been taken over by Hezbollah, and Unifil has uh, backtracked and is ineffective. But we think that the existence of Unifil is still an effective deterrent. Sure. And uh, that's why it should continue. And we will continue to pressure and ask Canada and other countries to pressure the Security Council to utilize Unifil better. Very good. When you think about what's been happening on the Syrian side of the border, do you see tunnel technology coming from there or do you see the entrenchment of Iranian bases? Well, the, we see several uh, ways in which Iran is trying to build a terror uh, infrastructure against Israel. First of all, they're trying to put Iranian uh, so-called Shiite militia, which is essentially Iranian Foreign Legion style, trained by Iranian officers. Professional but, Iranian troops? Yeah, no, no, no Iranian troops. Uh-huh. It's a Shiite from all over the Shiite world, right. commanded by Iranians, like the French Foreign Legion. A militia. Same, uh, same idea. Well, it's not a militia. It's a real army, but uh, under a different name. Good. And when you call the militia, you uh, undervalue their ability to cause damage. And okay. They can. So they wanted to build bases uh, for them closer to the uh, Israeli-Syrian border, and Israel demands they will withdraw back. Uh, otherwise, we will attack them and prevent them from getting closer. And the Russians support our view in this case, but the Russians will not impose it. Mm-hmm. They will demand it from the Iranians, but implementation of the deterrence has to be done by Israel. And secondly, Hezbollah forces are trying to build terror infrastructure along the northern areas of the Golan Heights near Mount Hermon. And they want to prepare an infrastructure that will enable them to use terrorism against Israel from that area. Not tunnels. Uh, It's almost impossible to dig tunnels in that area. But that's their idea, to build infrastructure, a terror infrastructure. We, we have seen that happening before. It has been interdicted and prevented before. Mm-hmm. But now, with the end of the civil war, this idea may rise again. Mm-hmm. And we've been seeing ballistic missiles attempting to penetrate Iron Dome in the last weeks. Do you see those types of missile strikes increasing? Or have, have these groups learned the lesson from Israel that there will be consequences to trying to do those things? The lessons they learned is they try to do it better and not to get caught. But uh, the lessons are not uh, ideological, they are technical. Correct. But uh, let me put it that way. Iran has been testing missiles for quite some time. Some of the Iranian missile tests are in contradiction and contravention to UN Security Council Resolution 2231. Yeah. The French has, uh, re- have recently uh, condemned uh, seriously the Iranian space launcher that they use uh, for ICBM yes. uh, tests, and so did Germany and Britain, and we hope that Canada will... Uh, Canada has been unfortunately slow. I only say that <clears throat> I can only say that we hope that Canada will join France, uh, Britain, and Germany. Yes. And uh, the Canada has, has condemned the missile tests in the past. In general. Yes. No, 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 no. The particular testing, uh, missile testing of Iran, Canada has condemned it in the past. Uh, but this particular egregious violation of the Security Council resolution that happened on uh, January 15th is something that uh, we have been uh, approaching countries about uh, for mm-hmm. quite some time. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, they try uh, to various other testing of non intercontinental ballistic missiles, but other ballistic missiles. And they have not been successful in penetrating the Iron Dome. But these are all, in our opinion, violations of Security Council resolution. The international community should stand up to Iran and prevent it. Why was it that ballistic missile testing, that the capacity to launch payloads 
of complex types of munitions. Why was that not part of the Iranian nuclear deal, the JCPOA? The uh, ICBMs were part of the Security Council resolution that adopted the JCPOA. Okay. The JCPOA is uh, remiss on several issues. And one of them, uh, first of all, is the uh, Iranian regional ambitions, right. and the way they operate, such as the civil war that they engineered in, the, in Yemen. And we only hear about the Saudi part of it. Well, the originators were the Iranians. Exactly right. We often start at the middle of the story in Yemen. Yeah. Right, and not at the beginning. Yes. This, this all started because of the coup attempt yes, by the Iranians. By the, the Iranians trained the Houthis, they provided them with the missiles. Hezbollah trainers and soldiers are in Yemen right. helping the Houthis. But I'm sometimes uh, troubled by a liberal press who is obsessed with Saudi Arabia. Not that Saudis, everything they do is wonderful, but uh, there is some obsession. Uh, with anti-Saudi feelings and, uh, as a result, a cover-up of the uh, Iranian uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. So the, the JCPOA misses a lot of things. The sunset closes. There are elements that are missing. And as you know, we object to the JCPOA. We objected to it from the beginning. Yes. And the Americans have now withdrawn from the agreement. Correct. Would you say that in the last two years, Iran has been increasingly testing the norms and rules that were established during the Obama era of the White House presidency? Or has Iran, in effect, been a bit more controlled as a result of the new order and new alliances emerging? Iran has been testing the limits uh, continuously. And uh, Obama believed, in my opinion, mm -hmm. that he can turn the JCPOA into a first step of responsible Iranian regional behavior. What has happened is, that A, the JCPOA has many uh, problems, and B, uh, Iran has been abusing the, the existence of the JCPOA to achieve its regional ambitions uh, role. Yemen, I mentioned, Syria, expansion of uh, missile testing, the recent one, clearly a violation of the resolution. The others, the Iranians' claims are not a violation. They are, but they claim differently. We are sure that the Iranians were... Uh, building new centrifuges so that they can enrich uranium when and if uh, it will become possible. Mm -hmm. So there has been both a lack of completeness on the JCPOA, uh, Iran has not been taken out of the nuclear race, and the uh, JCPOA has been abused of the, the political reality, the money that they got, they invested in armaments. So, it, sound, it sounds not like, like it's not been a success story as some would like to make it seem. Well, the Israeli position vis-a-vis -vis the JCPOA is clear. I don't think I need to say beyond <laughs> that. Fair point. <clears throat> I got to say, um, you know, the Israeli government has been very effective at speaking to the protests inside Iran. My compliments as well to you and your government for how strongly the Israeli government has come forward on the plight of the Venezuelan people. These are times in which people who are struggling against tyranny need to see friends. And it's a wonderful thing to see the only democracy in the Middle East stand strongly with the aspirations of people in places that are very complex. Yeah, I would say that the Venezuela crisis is uh, absolutely tragic. Two leaders, Chavez and Maduro, are destroying a rich country, bringing it to its knees, yes. and now complaining that somebody is trying to unseat them. So uh, we are really rooting uh, for their position, together with Canada, and by the way, yes. and as you know, uh, we've been in touch with Canada for a long time about this. Canada actually represents Israel uh, in uh, Venezuela, uh, there is a large Jewish community in Venezuela, mm -hmm. 5,000 people live in Caracas, mm -hmm. and we pray for the victory of the uh, revolution. Or the opposition forces, actually, the, the real democratic forces in Correct. Uh, Venezuela. 
Well, listen, you've been very generous with your time, Ambassador. I hope that we can invite you back to participate in our podcast as we take a look at what's been happening in the region and the temperature of freedom in the world. As I've said before, you are a great friend of the Institute. We're just so honored that you'd spend a bit of your time today with us to talk about the region. Well, I thank you very much for allowing me uh, to be here today. And I can assure you that the shifting sense of Middle East alliances will always make a talk different in the few months than it is now. Hopefully, those shifts will never compromise Canada's alliance with Israel. Oh, no, no, no. That, that I'm not worried about. <laughs> this is a, we expect a visit by the president of Israel uh, sometimes in April in Canada to make it clear how much uh, this alliance stands. It'll be a wonderful visit. We'll look forward to it. You, you must have a lot of work to do. Oh, yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ambassador. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, this is Shuvalay Majumdar with the McDonald Laurie Institute's podcast, Pod Bless Canada. Thanks for tuning in and stay tuned for more.